Hello everyone and welcome back to What Would The Smart Party Do? It's that time again and we've got another special guest. But before we get onto that, with me as usual is my good friend Baz. How are you doing Baz? Hello, I'm really good, thank you. Excellent to be here as always, especially with our special guest. Looking forward to this. Been all of 24 hours since we last spoke. It has a bit, hasn't it? Yeah. I presume you've got lots of new things to tell <laughs> me. But... but our listeners, it may have been a week, two weeks or whatever. But... <laughs> yeah, well, that's true, yeah. yeah. Time moves differently over here. So... Uh, Followers of our YouTube channel may have seen that we did uh, The Salt Must Still Be Sown, a one-shot adventure for Ironsworn RPG, and there is, in Kickstarter right now, at time of recording, a new sort of standalone version of that, but set in a more sci-fi environment. So what better time than now to get on a good friend of the show, Sean Tompkin. How are you doing, Sean? Hey there. Doing well, thank you. Good to have you on. So for, for perhaps our listeners who aren't familiar with your works just yet, there may be one or two, you never know, uh, just want to give us a quick pressy of kind of what gave birth to Ironsworn and how it all came about. Sure. So Ironsworn was released in 2018. It's a tabletop RPG, sort of a low fantasy RPG, relatively narrative. It's leveraging the Powered by the Apocalypse framework to some extent, although it sort of diverges from that quite a bit. I think its main sort of like whatever level of popularity is achieved is probably primary, primarily through its GM-less capabilities. So it's uh, solo and co-op modes, especially with the uh, state of the world the past year and, and things like that. I think solo role-playing in particular has been elevated in the conversation a little bit, at least in the circles I lurk. So um, Iron Torn has been part of that conversation, certainly. Yeah, and uh, it's a self-published, you know, RPG that I worked on primarily just me. Put it out and um, been doing, working on basically the same system since with some evolution of the system through some supplements and now Starforged. Yeah, awesome. So Iron Swan itself is kind of, it always reminds me of that uh, Mads Mikkelsen film, Valhalla Rising. It always sticks in my mind. It's like a desaturated uh, Iron Age kind of uh, epic, I guess. It's all a bit weird. He doesn't say much. He's a warrior that's been dragged around. It's just got, I don't know, it's got a feeling to it. I, it's kind of like earthy and gritty and of the far north where there are no gods almost. It's got a really yeah. sort of like weighty um, feel to it. Almost as if, like, I don't know, Werner Herzog directed it or something like that. <laughs> I mean, you can play it how you want, obviously. Yeah, I mean, there's def- definitely like, you know, it's it's intended to let you sort of set the dials of your tone a little bit, but yeah, I, you know, definitely uh, at the time I was working on it, I was watching a lot of the Viking series. I saw The Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio and the sort of like the aesthetic of that and the sort of the quest-based outdoor survival nature of it, I think was heavy in my head at the time. So there's a lot of that boiled in, I think. Yeah, yeah. And the other characters definitely go on journeys, I think it's fair to say. So given yeah. that was the starting point, uh, Starforged, which is your latest iteration, that's got a whole new art and seems to have a completely different aesthetic. So did you intentionally want to make a break from the from what you'd done a couple of years ago? Or was it just doing something roughly with the same system and mechanics and little bells and whistles you've got in there, which make it interesting, but put it in a different environment. What, what led to Starforged? I love sci-fi. Like if you look at sort of fantasy and sci-fi is like the, the, the sort of the, I don't know, the primary big, big buckets of tabletop role-playing, right? Like that sci-fi mm. was the next place I wanted to go with it. I'm just, you know, as a kid of the seventies, 
it's part of my DNA. So I wanted to sort of explore that space. I've never been super happy with, you know, the sci-fi RPGs I've played. So a big part of like being a game designer is like what thing doesn't exist that you want to play. If you're, I always believe if you're not making the game you want to play, you probably should be making another game, right? You're not trying to make <laughs> a game to some perceived industry demand or something. It's like, gee, what is the thing I'm passionate about? And I want to be able to play myself that doesn't exist. So let's create it. So obviously there's no shortage of great sci-fi tabletop RPGs, but it's just like this particular little narrow slice of them that wasn't quite the great fit for what I wanted to do that, you know, I decided to create in terms of like the, the general sort of development path and art and things like that. Ironsworn was like entirely me for the most part, for better or for worse. So even to the point of utilizing modified stock photography and things like that for the art. For this one, I just wanted to up-level the presentation and that means sort of reaching out to people who are infinitely more talented than myself to pull together the art. We still have, I think, as far as the art goes, we still have sort of a cinematic sort of photo reel, if you will, look to it. We're still yeah. actually using, you know, stock photography to some degree, but much more, you know, I've got an actual illustrator on board here, uh, Joshua Meehan, who was an amazing, you know, uh, illustrator who is up-leveled probably 10,000% over Ironsworn, I would say, <laughs> overall. What is wrong with start with sci-fi games and role-playing? Because I've I... I feel your pain if you think you couldn't find the game that was exactly yours, because I'm, I'm still looking 40 years down the line to find the sci-fi <laughs> game that works for me, so I'm glad you're on, because this had better be it. Okay, I've got close with a few, and I think as an industry, or as a hobby, sci-fi is just a difficult pitch sometimes, and even if you find the game as a potential GM for that game, finding players who could be on board with the vision that you maybe have for it, or that the author had for it, I think it's a tough sell. Shouldn't be, should it? Yeah, it, it's... It seems to be hard. It's tough. It's almost, you know, at the same time, sci-fi is sort of broader and more narrow than fantasy, right? And there's some sci-fi games that try to be, I think, a toolkit for every possible sort of subgenre of fantasy, right? They want to support hard sci-fi. They want to support pulp sci-fi. And that, I think, just waters them down by virtue of trying to be all things to all people. There's some sci-fi that I th probably, I, I guess, for sci-fi tabletop RPGs, one of the most sort of popular subgenres is sort of like the scrappy crew in the starship paying off the mortgage, right? Um, uh, that's traveler inspired, obviously, which is sort of like the birth of all those. But I think there's a ton of games that are sort of working off that that approach, and I'm I'm not particularly interested in like paying off the mortgage of my starship or you know sort of taking jobs and managing the money and all those sort of things so that's less interesting to me and then like the super gonzo sci-fi just is less interesting to me as a as a genre to like the things that sort of lean really heavily into the pulp you know as a i sort of like the the more sort of like dirty gritty scavenge aesthetic of like 70s sci-fi um, so like original trilogy, Star Wars, Alien with the more sort of industrial and isolated suspense, sci-fi, I love that sort of stuff. And another thing I don't, I don't think has been done super well, at least I haven't found it. It probably has. Everything's been done by somebody, but I don't think there's been a sci-fi game which is great at exploration. There's obviously super detailed systems for travelers and others for like generating a star system and down to the molecular structure of the plants on the planet. You can, you know, that you can get super 
wonky about that stuff, but there wasn't something to me that sort of gave a little bit of that sense of wonder as you're traveling around um, that had a nice sort of mix of the mundane and the magical to some degree in terms of the stuff you encounter. So that was one of my goals here too, especially keeping in mind the solo play is introducing locations and encounters as you go that sort of create a little bit of that feeling of discovery and exploration that I felt was maybe maybe missing from some from some of the current ones I've tried. Now, last year, when uh, when we were all in lockdown, pretty much around the planet, was uh, that was uh, the time that we were first introduced to Iron Swarm over mm -hmm. uh, over this side of the pond, and uh, and, uh, and our friend Shane ran us through a terrific session, which we, we ended up putting onto YouTube because it was it was such a good session, and it, and there was loads of little novel things in that that made it my favorite oh, game of last year actually my favorite session um, absolute highlight uh, so I'll be waiting with bated breath for Starforged but I, but I feel that by playing it with a GM and four players and we went on a quest <laughs> are we doing it wrong because <laughs> <laughs> because you mentioned the solo thing and that's kind of a unique selling point for yeah. your games at this point not at all you know it's so for, for, the, for, the, for the the trad in me Totally okay and encouraged, you know, that's not something I'm going to strip out. I think the advantage of the GM'd mode in Ironsworn and Starforged is giving you the ability to sort of set set your own dial where, where you want the narrative control as a GM. You can play it as a very sort of traditional GM game with a, with a fair amount of GM authority over what's happening, what the outcome to your actions are, the other characters the locations in the world like the GM can take a relatively heavy hand and all that or the GM can like turn the dial the other direction and be almost a little bit of a, a player to some degree and turn questions back to the players more often in terms of what's happening next what they're encountering and then using the oracle tables and generators to help support that so I like that as a GM I like low prep GMing I'm terrible about prepping for games because if I'm going to prep for a game, I'm going to spend 10 hours prepping stuff that will never even be encountered. And part of developing Ironshorn was getting myself out of that mode and being a little bit more um, open to the idea of just like having a world and letting the players explore and then responding to it as the GM versus trying to plan for sessions, which are just going to grow or rye anyway, despite any level of planning. So all those things, I think like the fact that the, the sort of the fallback is the solo mode, like that all feeds into, you know, low, no prep GMing with a lot of uh, flexibility over, over how much of the narrative you're sharing with your players. So yes, totally allowed and encouraged. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. Uh, John Harper, another good friend of the show. He, he, said that the, the sort of the solo uh, mechanics or tech that you brought to the game were a masterpiece even which is no small amount of praise given what a great designer he is as well so that's that's going to be encouraging to hear right when people of that that stature are giving you mad props for your your game yeah that was amazing i'm gonna i've, I've asked to have like john harper's quote put on my tombstone um, <laughs> so i love to hear i would never use the word masterpiece and you know all things are standing on the shoulders of giants right including john harper like just looking at what he does especially as someone john harper does his own uh, layout and illustration and and game design so 
he's very much sort of the auteur in that respect. And I aspire to be a little bit of that myself. Like I, I wear a few hats myself. So I, I spend a lot of time looking at his books, trying to divine their secrets and failing to, <laughs> to a great degree. So yeah, it's a thrill. Yeah, it's all sorcery. Saying nice things. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess one of the things that strikes me there about if if you can play it solo, that and to sort of tie into Bazzi's point, that arguably gives you um, an extra leg up as a gem if you want to run it in a more traditional mode, that you could play it yourself first in a solo mode yeah. to get a feel for it yeah. and get a handle on the oracle tables and all the other bits and pieces that you have to do, yeah. and then when you actually bring it in front of your players, you've kind of had a practice run, right? Yeah, that's something that other games can't do. Yeah, for sure, or even even in parallel with your players being able to participate on your own, you know, in your own campaign independently as a player or, or in a co-op mode, having the chance to for forever GMs to actually play a character um, without trying to insert, you know, heavy handed NPC stand ins for their character uh, in the middle of a campaign is, is fun too. You know, I'm a, I'm one of those forever GMs. I don't, I don't enjoy games as much just as a player in a GM led game for whatever. Like I, I tend to like to play the GM, but I'm perfectly happy doing like a co-op game with my wife or my son or whatever. And both of us just being players and, and to a certain extent, you're both being GMs and those sort of things. Like the, the system in solo mode is not some sort of like GM computer emulator. The phrase GM <laughs> emulator comes up a lot in solo games. Right, but really, really, you're just getting tools to be able to wear the GM hat somewhat organically in play. You're, you know, there's there's still a GM there. They're just a little bit sort of hardwired into the system um, to enable you to to take that role without feeling too much like you're, you know, having to bounce between GM and player. Mm. So one of the things I just mentioned there was the oracles. Do you want to like give our listeners an idea about? how they came about and what you use them for because i think that's one of the, the key parts of the your system to be honest yeah so what i call oracles are just you know for the most part random tables that's you know random tables obviously have a long and storied history in rpgs all the way back to og days right for original basic D and such even the original editions of DD had like generators to like generate a dungeon on the fly for ostensibly solo play or something i guess but the what iron sword does is sort of take takes uh tables and finds some that are relatively mundane and specific just for the typical things you need to generate on the fly like the name of a person right or the name of a settlement or something like that and then adds in more abstract oracles that you can use as creative prompts to interpret based on what's happening in your uh in your narrative to fit your situation. So things like verb noun combinations that are relatively abstract, things like uh, character goals, which are maybe a little bit more specific, but still have a lot of abstraction around them, a lot of space for you to creatively interpret and play within. And then just bundling all those with responses that feel somewhat organic to the low fantasy, you know, perilous setting. Mm. So to some extent, it's a little bit of sort of like a one-stop shop, whereas things like the GM, the mythic GM emulator were meant to fit all genres. So it's all sort of like bundled into a low fantasy aesthetic. So it feels organic to that. And then same thing for Starforge of just having a lot of oracles that are not only specific to like science fiction, but specific to Starforge's 
idea of what science fiction is for this particular game. Gotcha. Yeah, and uh, I think the aesthetic I I talk about is ashtrays in space. I think is what me and Baz call it. That kind of the paint's been chipped off things, and you know. Uh, the spaceships are lived in. They're not, you know, it's not Starship Enterprise. Where yeah, everything's yeah, in it's not stuff. not glossy and clean. It's definitely not imperial science fiction or Star Trek or things like that. It's a little bit more scavenged and used. Um, it's to some extent, it's like it's literally iron torn in space because it's taking like sort of the the frontier aesthetic, the people fleeing a catastrophe in their homelands, like that overarching narrative and transplanting it to space so it obviously does more and different things with it um, than that but it's it's still hanging its hat on the, the sort of like the perilous barely settled frontier as a as a platform for your adventures I think you uh, you name check a few things like uh, the Mandalorian uh, Firefly I mean the Mandalorian when that dropped last year was it? <laughs> that must have delighted you to think hey, I to have written the Mandalorian RPG that's yeah, it was actually, it was funny watching Mandalorian because it's like, oh, this is like, there's a couple episodes where this is very much, you could almost just like plot out the Iron Zorn or Starforged like flow through it all. I think a lot of that is just born of the fact that Mandalorian is, is comes from a lot of the same places. Like it's very much the Western, Spaghetti Western or Seven Samurai sort of quest structure to a certain degree, which Ironshorn takes a lot of inspiration from. You know, Ironshorn takes inspiration from fantasy, but there's a lot of like, you know, that that Western DNA in there just in terms of the wandering hero and the the things they run across in their travels is, you know, is rich in the DNA. So Mandalorian had a ton of that, obviously. But yeah, I I, I took some inspiration from Mandalorian as well. Some of the some of the character assets and things like that that I I launch with are definitely Mandalorian inspired so yeah nice of Disney to do an extended example of play for you there <laughs> yeah well, <that's> great. <laughs> so you've you touched upon earlier having uh, a sense of discovery uh, and exploration yeah. how does that how does that work in game how do you because um, one of the things I'm thinking there is quite often uh, if you play the game with a dial turns a certain direction yeah. it's up to the players to decide what's what's happening or what things look like yep. so how, how do you marry that up with also managing to keep players surprised and having something interesting happening how does the the game sort of support that kind of dynamic there's a few ways I'm doing it one is through the lore and I'm doing like finger quotes lore of the setting and the way interstellar travel travel works I, I sort of constructed it in a way that encourages used you to have to discover things as you go along so in the setting, you have starships which can travel faster than the speed of light, but they can only do it for a few hours at a time. They have to lay over at what in setting is called an anchorage to recharge or drive, get ready for the next you know, segment of faster than light travel. So each of those little stops, which I, you know, I liken to a, a stone skipping across a, a vast cosmic pond. Each of those is an opportunity to sort of like see what's out there and discover something. You've got a few hours of a layover anyway, so if something is interesting, you might as well go look at it, right? If there's some super interesting planet or a derelict ship or some ancient vault of long lost civilizations, well, you've got time to kill. It's worth a look. Let's go see what's out there, right? So that's sort of like 
nod to how starships work is just designed to let, encourage players to not hit a hit a button to travel from point A to point B, but to make it more of a sort of a perilous, interesting journey. Um, and then the oracles I built into Starforged are like Iron Sworn oracles on steroids. Like there's especially the location oracles in Iron Sworn. I didn't really lean too heavily into locations because I figured out ah, it's low fantasy. It's Iceland. It's Greenland. Like it's you know Northern Europe. People can people can picture it and do okay on their own without me having to like provide a huge amount of detail for it. Sci-fi is so much more sort of expansive in the possibilities that I wanted to make sure I was providing a lot of tools for people to picture things as they go. So there's tables to roll on for what you see in a particular location in space. There's detailed tables for planetary types. There's tables to generate creatures. There's uh, generators for derelict ships and what you see as you travel within them through the various zones of a derelict ship. There's generators for the weird and wonky things you might find in some accursed alien vault. So there's a lot more detail there. A little bit that I played with in the, in the supplement for Ironshorn Delve in terms of the more location-based adventures. And this, I'm just sort of expanding that and taking it to its, you know, I think reasonable conclusion for a, a sci-fi setting. Um, and a mix of the mundane and the wondrous, like I talked about earlier, right? You might, there might just be some lonely, rocky planetoid out there when you stop at an anchorage, or it might be a planet-sized amoeba, you know, one of the, or anything in between, right? So I like a little bit of the gonzo in there, but just because I think that's cool and fun. Um, but you can't, you know, the gonzo is not gonzo without sort of the mundane to balance it out, right? So, right. So I guess uh, the other angle to come on it from as well is from the player point of view and the player character. Uh, in Iron Sworn, you kind of like you have a vow yep. something that you're going to do. You know, a strong is, is that sort of element still strongly Starforged? And I'm just wondering how that translates across a galaxy-spanning journey that you might be going on. Like, is there guidance on what kind of vow you can have that you're still going to be able to do when you're fighting planetized amoebas or <laughs> <laughs> like a variety of other things that are going on? Uh, definitely, the vows are still an in-setting conceit, like the idea of people making iron vows is still there and it's still a driver for your adventure. When you are setting up your campaign, you define a background vow for your character, you define an inciting incident that's sort of the driving initial motivation that is structured around a vow. In setting, you have to decide as a character, you know, it's not like people are swearing a vow to necessarily transport cargo across a sector or something like that, because that may be mundane and not worthy of a vow. But the important sort of, you know, things that are important and crucial to your character or those you care about uh, definitely can and will be vows. In Ironsworn, the vows were sort of the main driver for character sort of growth and things like that. Like that's how you earned experience. So the game was explicitly encouraging you to undertake sworn vows in order to earn experience. In Starforge, it, it broadens out a little bit because you earn experience by virtue of going on expeditions and completing those so just just the fact of exploring is going to earn you experience in the game and then forming bonds with others which was a little bit less detailed in Ironsworn than it is, is in Starforge the idea of building connections and then um, growing those relationships and building bonds with them is also um, you know explicitly rewarded as part of the system through experience so that's sort of the three pillars of play is quests uh, exploration and bonds mm -hmm. 
can we talk about the the look of your games it's um this is obviously not something that's just thrown together <laughs> the look of your games is is quite something for those who haven't visited your website i cannot recommend that too highly just to to get some sense of the visuals and also the formatting that you use as well i think in the in the deluxe package that you you have up for Star Forge, we've got wire bound books we've got decks of cards we've got um and the assets and the cards and the photography big shout out to joshua mean and nathan yep. gray who does your icon design as well i think yeah um, can, you, can you tell us about how this look comes together because I, I can't imagine the game without that look now well i'm a i'm a graphic designer that's my day job so i've got a little bit of interest in layout and stuff like that i've worked web design for the past couple of decades so the print stuff is kind of new to me and it was a little bit of a learning experience through working on Ironsworn of just how to like lay out a book and then I'm trying to sort of evolve those skills obviously sorry everybody for using books that I sell you as a platform for learning <laughs> their skills but it is what it is but yeah I've just I've got an interest in design look at the work others are doing and and try to emulate that to some degree I definitely some have called like the aesthetic a little bit like user interface in that like it's not super it's not super like i look at some super rich design like free league might put out or something and and envy that but the mm -hmm. ironsworn stuff is a little bit more focused on clean sharp sort of usable stuff versus super rich um evocative design i think starforge probably just by virtue of the the illustration work by Joshua and the icons by Nathan and things like that, I think up levels the overall sort of like richness of the design. But um, yeah, overall, I just, I like flow charts. I like diagrams. I like visuals of dice rolls. I like call outs. You know, I like all that stuff. Just a way of like helping people read the books and learn the game. So I mostly try to push usability, I think over super intense design. Hmm. Not to knock super intense design, because like I said, I look at that stuff and wish I could get to that level. I know I never will. So it's sort of like working within my uh, the framework of what I know I'm capable with of and trying to trying to push that as far as I can. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure it's you that does this, but uh, but you see Joshua's work on Twitter where he, where he puts side by side some of his preliminary sketches and how it's worked up into that photorealistic thing that he's got going on there. That's quite a process, and it's really nice to be able to see behind the scenes on how that comes together as well and how it fits into the layout that you've got going on. It's amazing, and it's amazing being having front row seat for this. I don't know, just as, just as somebody who works solo for so long, I worked on Ironstorm by myself, I worked on, and I worked on Dell primarily with my son, Matt Click, who's a RPG designer himself. Mm. And then for this, I'm broadening the team further, but. Uh, I can't tell you how many hours I spent on like the art of Ironsworn and not being able to have to deal with that is super <laughs> nice. And and seeing these sketches come in and just talking through Joshua with like, you know, what should we do for this illustration? Like, what's it going to depict? And then he'll actually, speaking of the oracles, he'll go and roll on the oracle tables. Like if he's creating a creature, he'll go generate the creature using the oracle tables and then interpret that through his illustration. So the art really does reflect the game. It's like generated to some degree, you know, by a mix of these oracles and Joshua's obvious, obvious creative genius. That's awesome stuff. I, I do like the easy belly uh, angle. That's something that John Harper does well as well. 
I don't know it's because I work in IT as well. I want things to be functional and usable. Yeah. But, um, you know, we, we love Free League on this show. We quite often have some of the guys on the show. And um, I, I don't know. I think of things like Alien, for example, which is one of their sci-fi offerings. Yeah. It looks great. It's a brilliant coffee table book. But I kind of wish it had an extra book as well that was just the rules. Yeah. You know, you know, it looks amazing, and I'm glad I've got it. But sometimes when there's a whole page... And it's just like largely black art, and there's just like one little text box in the bottom <laughs> corner of a double spread. You kind of think yeah. it looks good, but when I'm running this at a table, what I want is the text only version. That's <laughs> like the, the cliff notes almost. So yeah, and you want it wire bound so it will. Sit yeah, maybe a, maybe so a wire easily. maybe a wire bound <laughs> reference guy. That's a good idea. Somebody Absolutely. would think of that. Only somebody should do that. Yeah, yeah. should be stressful. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, I think you've done a really good job, or you and the team have done a really good job of, of making something usable and looking awesome as well. I think that's the that's the sweet spot, isn't it? If you can uh, deliver content-rich uh, product and it also looks amazing, that's kind of like you're onto a winner. Yeah, that's what I'm always that's what I'm always aiming for. Varying levels of success, obviously, and still stuff to learn. But um, I think it's just about sort of like finding your niche in terms of design and hitting that balance of like richness and usability. Mm. Um, so not necessarily coffee table book as much as I love free league stuff. I, I agree. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with Lord of the Rings because that's going to be incredibly yes. beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like make it as, <laughs> make it as usable or non-usable as you like free league. I'll it doesn't matter. Does it? Super <laughs> happy, yeah. Yeah. You've got my money already. <laughs> <laughs> I've already backed it to the hill. So now, um, Sure, gamers being greedy as they are, you're at time of recording about halfway through the Kickstarter of this. It appears to be going quite well, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> but, yeah, um, it's amazing. What, that's, that's looking at a potentially a delivery of physical books, I think, uh, early next year, something like yep. that? Yeah. Okay. So what's the plans after that? Because we're greedy gamers, right? Is it possible to do adventures for your games? Is it possible to do that? It's really, it's a little bit like contrary to the system, a little bit like um, uh, adventures because so much is focused on sort of discovery at the table and low prep, no prep and having, and the way the narrative will tend to go sideways just based on the outcome of moves would quickly sort of like undermine any sort of planned adventure. Mm. So I don't think so. For Starforge, we're going to do what we're calling sector starters, which are sort of like uh, I think they're going to be like one pagers of like a generated sector with some built in locations and conflicts and things like that. that you can springboard off. So in an existing campaign, you could potentially drop it in when you encounter a new sector or as a as a launch pad for a new campaign. So that sort of thing of just like setting up situations and then seeing where they go from there, I think is great. And that's not dissimilar from like sandbox play or hex crawls or something like that where it's not about an overarching plot right it's more about setting up these locations and potential encounters and conflicts and things like that and then just you know seeing what happens when when players interact with those things i guess that is the adventures isn't it in in this format yeah yeah it's the first few sentences and off you go beyond that i don't I'm so focused on Starfires at the moment and everything takes so much longer than I expect. I was laughing at myself on Twitter the other day because I had a, a roadmap from 2018 where I was like, oh, here's all the stuff you're going to see in the next two years. It's going to be so awesome. And it's like, I don't know what I was thinking. 
<laughs> like I should have just done the math on how long it took me to develop Iron Sworn and and computed that out logically. <laughs> it's not like you haven't done it before, is it? <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I'll never learn. But I'm uh, I'm definitely interested in continuing to explore Iron Sworn. There's some I've been working on some sort of. Uh, settlement management type stuff of just like zooming in a little bit on a specific location and creating more hooks for the players to interact with the people and situations there. So that may be next for me, but we'll see. I think that kind of um, setting up situations that are interesting things to kick stuff off actually isn't that far away from how some people play Traveller, for example, because oh, I sure. remember back in the day, yep. books like 101 Patrons or things like that. They, they were really popular compared to published adventures. Like, I think what people... I don't know if it's just sci-fi. I think particularly sci-fi is what people want is the the genesis of ideas, the starting situations, the cool thing to be interested in, and then start playing and decide, you know, discover what happens through play kind of thing. I think it's... I don't know whether fantasy is easier to plot or people expect it or they're used to reading like Lord of the Rings or novels or movies and stuff. And everything seems more planned out. Yeah, that may be. Um, Traveler's definitely got that background of like, get to a place, see what jobs are there, pick up some cargo, take it to another place, encounter some troubles along the way. So that puts a lot on the GM to sort of like have that stuff ready to go. So I think that's why traditionally Traveler's had pretty good tools with like all the the regions that are already sort of mapped out and to have the locations and people and factions and all that sort of stuff built in so the GM can refer to that as they go. Yeah, and I guess the danger is that if you give GMs too much stuff, you're giving them 700 page source books to internalize before they can start their first game because they yeah. feel they need to know everything and know yeah. which faction happens to be at that address at that time. Right. Um, which could be overwhelming. For sure, and that's the that's the sort of stuff I as a attention to detail sort of GM that's the sort of stuff well I'm one of those who would feel like they have to read that 700 page book and internalize <laughs> it all and make bullet points for myself to refer back to to understand where everything is so yeah that's part of like creating Iron Sworn for me it was just like un untethering myself from my bad tendencies I think to some degree <laughs> <laughs> so have you got um kind of a vision of how a campaign would look for Starforged is that is it more it feels a little bit more because of the tools that you can just play a bit like laying the rail track out in front of you as you go one thing at a time yeah one session at a time or is do you think this is even worthwhile trying to look at an arc that like sort of like the series arc if you know what I mean rather than the monster of the week episodes that you have in a tv series there's usually some like if you think x-files there's some background story that's happening yeah is this is it worth trying to stitch something like that into it or will that just develop naturally through sessions do you think i think a little of both i think i think there's i think it's there's always going to be a combination of sort of episodic and serialized play where you have overarching sort of character goals that are there and characters will ping every so often just based on situations as well as overarching elements of the universe that you've created in terms of like the factions and conflicts and background that will come into play so really i think for me like the ideal what i would hope people are doing is is not just sort of moving from random adventure to random adventure but having a mix of things that occur organically as part of like the the narrative threads they've created for the setting as well as like incidental events that 
sort of throw you off those things. So adventures of the week versus like the that sort of overarching campaign and um, something I've tried to do with Starforge versus Ironsworn, just like having the benefit of a couple of years of watching uh, actual plays and and seeing how people interact with the system is is front loading the campaign setup a little bit more. There's a there's a chapter dedicated to creating the background for your setting, creating your character, um, uh, and then launching your uh, creating a starting sector. So having just a few locations to latch onto to begin with. And then defining what is the sort of inciting incident that's 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 motivating the initial session of play, and using all that, and then from there, hopefully, if I've done it right, the the mechanics and all the narrative tools will, based on that sort of initial inertia, will will carry that momentum forward and just keep things rolling somewhat organically. So. Yeah, I've tried to provide a lot more in terms of like, it's a little bit front loaded. Like there's this assumed like couple hours or more you're gonna spend as a group or as a solo player or whatever, like collaboratively going through these um, guided exercises together. But people, I think it's it's fun on its own and people seem to be having fun with it. And then it, you know, it gives you all that narrative fuel. So then, then as a GM, you don't have to prep because you've got all this stuff going on already and as a as a player you have you're never left wondering what to do next there's always sort of an impetus to for the next step in your adventure yeah that kind of session zero um thing you've just described there is super common now isn't it it's hard to yep. believe that that you would start a campaign in any rpg without that really now it seems so so obvious uh, such a useful thing to do yeah, for sure. You know, back in the day, it was often the GM coming to the table with like, "Here's here's the world. Let me let me wax on poetically about it for an hour or two, and then we'll jump in and create some characters and play." <laughs> Where I think the the idea of sort of like having everybody, all the players having a shared stake in the world and collaborative world creation is a I think a pretty um, well practiced part of tabletop these days, and sure. reasonably so. I think that you know I think that's much more fun for everybody. So um, outside of Ironsworn, Starforged, if there is such a thing as outside of that, what are you playing at the moment? I've got a campaign going with my son. He's He's got a, a Star Wars D6 hack. It's called Hyperspace D6, which is a ton of fun. It's sort of like streamlined West End Games D6. So we're doing that bi-weekly or so. That's a lot of fun. And that's kind of it for tabletop gaming, that and <laughs> my own Starforged stuff, which I'm constantly just sort of like either just you know white room type stuff to test out a mechanic or ongoing campaigns that i do just to see how stuff is working out in play so it's one of the advantages of like a system that is solo capable as a designer is i can actually sit there and just test on myself without needing to get a group together but <laughs> obviously benefiting from play testers as well because i i have tunnel vision as the designer to assuming everything is perfect and fine sometimes when it's actually not so so it must be really interesting watching other people play your game and certainly given you've got like several dials one being it could be more gm full or gm less depending on how you want to dial yeah. it so have, has there been i mean it must be gratifying first of all that people are playing your game and doing something with it but has anything been surprising come out of that have you have you watched some actual players or streams where you thought oh, i didn't know my game could do that or perhaps it's 
someone's thought of an interesting way of, of approaching something that perhaps you hadn't considered when you put it together. For sure, it's uh, it's really gratifying. There has been a lot of like actual play stuff with Ironsworn, especially the solo mode. Trevor Duvall was a voice actor, just finished a season playing Ironsworn with this really uh, high production series. It's just sort of amazing to watch these really tight 30-minute episodes that are really well produced with him doing, you know, obviously being a voice actor, he's got a lot of skill in that regard. So that's super fun to watch and kind of surreal to watch. It's also nerve wracking seeing people play my game and, and feeling ashamed when they interpret something wrong or something like that. Like, it's just like, it's sort of a combination of like joy and stress watching someone play, I think sometimes, but definitely I've been gratified by the fact that people, the, the oracles seem to function really well. Like that idea of like these abstract oracles that feel sometimes a little bit magical or uncanny in terms of like the, the ideas they trigger in game that are sort of a perfect fit for your current situation. Like that's really cool to see. Um, and always cool to see how people interpret things. Cause I'll be sitting there watching and have my own interpretation and they'll, do, they'll come up with something like a thousand times cooler. And I think that's an argument for like letting, giving players that narrative freedom and, and wiggle room because players are always going to come up with stuff that is a billion times cooler than I come up with if I create a like super detailed specific table of like encounters in a forest or something like that. Like somebody taking like a simple noun verb combination is going to be much cooler than I can come up with if I've got a 200 word entry in a table for something that they encounter in a journey in a forest. Right. So giving myself like permission to like lean into that abstraction a little bit, I think has been a good lesson watching those things. So I had to spend a lot of time with that because I've noticed there's a game out that I noticed you back as well called Orbital Blues by, uh, Zach, yep. one of the, our, our friends, so, and, and he's talked before Just about when he's writing. Last week. Yeah, when he writes stuff, it's, it's often quite terse, or it can be with his OSR buddies, some of the stuff. But they, they'd like they'll spend a, a, you know an, an evening talking about one word choice or something. <laughs> the, the, the oracles feel like something like, although ostensibly it could just be a noun and a verb, the list of nouns and verbs must have taken a lot of thought, right? I bit off a lot with Starforge in terms of like the number of oracles I included because I wanted to include a lot of location stuff and a lot of generators and stuff that I hadn't seen sci-fi games do necessarily before maybe at least not packaged in that way right where especially one of the things I wanted to do was the whole idea of sort of exploration discovery was that there's things you might perceive at a first glance that are different than what you're going to learn as you explore interact with something deeper so structuring the tables to have sort of like the first impressions but also separate tables for what you discover um, about that creature, person, or place as you interact with them. Sort of doubled my workload to some degree, right? Versus just packaging it all together. But yeah, I always say like the first 90% of table entries are pretty easy and the last 10% will break your soul. And that's kind of the way it is. Like <laughs> I've literally spent weekends on a handful of table entries. Just trying to come up with those last few things because they're they're so tough to sort of think of once you've felt like you've done all the easy sort of obvious things. So you've done all the good ones. Yeah. 
you need another good one. <laughs> yeah, they've all got to be good. But and it's you know striking that balance of of specificity and abstraction and having levels of of abstraction that lead to specificity is is challenging but fun i enjoy it so i won't won't say it, it tortured me i won't be, I, won't, I won't take the tortured arthur uh, author sort of like <laughs> sad song here how do you think your games might translate then given the sort of like the level of thought you have to put into word choices if if for example star Wars was written in portuguese or a, a japanese or another language yeah that's but but that be a it might be a tough a tough ask for the translator. That's interesting. I, I've there is some Ironsworn translations. There's French, German, Spanish currently, if I recall correctly. And I don't have a lot of insight into you know, I hear a little bit of back and forth sometimes about a difficulty translating a particular thing, but that's often at the level of like a stat label or something like that that's a little bit more functional versus an Oracle label. So I don't know. I almost want to know. I don't, probably don't want to know sometimes, like <laughs> the translation. I think Starforge will be particularly challenging in that regard um, because there's a lot of like, I don't know. There's a lot of terms that I think are going to be tough to translate from English just because there's a lot of uh, nuance to them that are that are going to be tough. But we'll see. Yeah. Well, there you go, the listeners. It's a, a challenge for any of you out there. You've got some language <laughs> skill, I guess. We've talked about abstraction and various other things. Like, how would you how would you pitch this game at someone who's coming at it from Traveller, or if you like a, a generic sci-fi game? Uh, Star Wars is going to work differently than a standard GM'd author game, I would suggest. What would you like Elevator be pitch be for someone to come in to try and Star Wars out, and, and what's like the the benefit of using this system to give you a different experience? I think, you know, the benefits are it's broad enough to uh, fit, you know, some different uh, genres, either with some light hacking or no hacking at all. So you can sort of like stretch the middle a little bit to fit something like Star Wars really well, something like Alien really well. You can lean into the more sort of isolation and horror and suspense aspects of it. That'll work just fine. It's, It's all built for that. So there's a lot of play there in terms of like the tone you want to establish at the table and the world building exercises will help you establish and narrow in on on what specific sort of tone and adventures and things like that you're going to explore. If you like humanistic, somewhat gritty, 70s retro sci-fi, I think it's a great fit for you. If you like a sense of sort of wondery and discovery and uncertainty and space-bound travel, I think it'll really speak to that just by virtue of sort of the structure of the game and the the variety of oracles and things you can encounter. And then if you like small group play, if you like flexibility to uh, play GMless, you know, it's obviously a great fit for that, whether solo or with a, you know, two to three players, I think is really the sweet spot. In fact, I would argue probably a two to three player game is probably the, the sweet spot overall for the game. Um, even beyond solo mode, just because you have more creative brain power at work there, right? Um, with two or three people, um, and I think it's a really, you know, I think it's a really fun, fun game for a small group. It's less good for a big group. It's going to work less well for five or six players. Just the way the mechanics work, it's not going to be great for that. It's not going to be great for Star Trek with a crew and things like that. It's meant for like scrappy starships with a small crew, you know, at the at the mm-hmm 
edge of known space. People have asked about Star Trek, which is probably like the number one thing once I started developing for one reason or another was, can I do Star Trek? I've always said, you know, you, the the crew of a you know Starship Enterprise, probably not. But if you want to play like the small crew of a stolen Klingon scout ship out looking for their lost homeworld, like that's a perfect fit for that sort of thing, right? So you can play at the edge of some of those known settings, but you know, it's not necessarily going to be a great fit for all of them. I think the fact that it's not a complete toolkit for every kind of sci-fi is probably a feature, not a bug for the most part, though. Hmm. Yeah, agreed. That that sounds much more interesting, being a Klingon scout ship. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I said that on Twitter, and then, it, then I thought to myself, well, now I've got to play that, because that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> awesome stuff. So, um, are there any other games out there or anything that have given you any inspiration, do you think? Are there any bits you've looked at and thought, oh, you know, I wish I'd written that? Or um, just, you know, an element of it, maybe, that you thought, that really stands out to me. Or are you just kind of like head down in your own work and kind of having to come up with your own creative genius? <laughs> I mean, I definitely have my eyes on things just by virtue of... There's this game called King of Dungeons that I backed a couple of years ago that I really oh, like a lot. Yeah. It's, it's awful. Oh, mate. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, that's really slick. You know, one thing I really admire about this that game that I read it and I, I was just like, oh, I wish I could do this, is just the, the authorial voice of it. Like, I try to sneak that in every once, like that really strong voice, and I just can't, I can't do it. So someday I'm going to write like a really short, pithy game that has a really strong authorial voice and I'm going to go back and look at King of Dungeons to try to pick up on a little bit of that because I, I just love the author presence in that. It was really well done. Thank you. I, I can't not do it. <laughs> the ego in me is so bad having, having a podcast isn't enough. I then need to like write stuff down and post it to people. <laughs> Thank you. But uh, I mentioned my son earlier, Matt Click, who is with a with a small RPG publisher called Absolute Tabletop, and they put out a lot of um, stuff. A lot of it D and D five E related. Some of it more generic and universal. But his his D six hack I, I love a lot. Hyperspace D6. They've got a sci-fi game coming out that's called uh, Harbinger, which is a 5e hack, which sort of takes place. It's a little bit like uh, Sword and Planet feeling a little bit to me. It's a little bit like dark sci-fi. It takes place around a Jovian planet with a ton of moons. I just love that setting. That's really cool. Everything Free League does is amazing. I love those people. I can't wait to see the One Ring. I'm having a little bit of a hand in that with the solo play roles, so I'm excited about that. Mm. Coyote and Crow on Kickstarter recently was really cool. Yes. Like I'm super excited to see what they do there, do there. Like that, the concept of it is such a forehead smacking, like obvious thing that I can't believe it hasn't been done to that degree before. Right, the idea of like North America, uncolonized North America, is just an amazing concept you know i'm glad the right crew came along to do it and not a bunch of white guys you know so that's yeah. that's exciting and then there's just been a lot of stuff like you know in sort of the journaling solo space that i think is really cool the wretched series is cool the Ten Thousand year old vampire is cool like that stuff is i've always got an, an eye on that's not the kind of thing i could create i don't think but uh i love it all the same 
Cool, excellent stuff. Well, I think we're getting close to time, so we're going to have to let you go, unfortunately. It's been great to have you on. Uh, anything else you need to, you want to tell us about, or is it all just Starforge? Shall I put the, the link <laughs> in the show notes, and that'll be good enough for Yeah, no, that's good enough. I'm living and breathing. Back in that campaign gets you the preview edition right away, which is a pretty much robust, playable game out of the gate. Been working really hard on it the past couple of years, so I'm thrilled to see that start to pop up and people start to actually play the game instead of waiting for some, you know, far off goal of actually getting the books on hand. So beautiful. I guess we'll uh, we'll talk again in a few years when you complete the trilogy and we're talking about <laughs> Super Swarm or Horror yeah. Swarm or whatever the next one is. We'll see. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it goes next. I have ideas, but. But uh, they're all competing with each other at the moment. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me on. It was a real pleasure. No problem, Sean. As a long-time listener, first-time caller, it was great to to be on. (laughs) Welcome anytime. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. So there we have it. Starforged. A new space-bound edition of Ironsworn. New improved. It was uh, really cool to have Sean on. and I, I really liked the idea that he's been watching other people play the game as feedback <laughs> uh, and you know to refine his own game that's almost I think that's a benefit of streaming isn't it that you couldn't do that before you have to ask for feedback or get people to write the thoughts down but in the modern age you can actually watch people playing your stuff mm. uh, and, and very very humble of him to say when people didn't understand that, understand things or misinterpreted something he took that as a personal failing as a game designer that he hadn't explained <laughs> it like that. I'd have blamed the GM blamed yeah <laughs> No, uh, what? Well, uh, yeah, what a self-effacing man! I, uh, delight, a really, really nice interview, and um, yeah, I really encourage people to head over to either the Kickstarter, which is still running for a couple of weeks at the time of recording, it ends uh, mid-May, something like that, or go to the website. I mean, it's glorious to look at, um, mm. and and having played the game and talked with Sean, I'm even more excited to get my copy of of what I've been really trying hard not to call Star Sworn for the last hour I think some people have been (laughs) (laughs) you look at Twitter (laughs) yeah Uh, but really good stuff and and to your point about like watching people play you know it wasn't that long ago really I don't think it was that long ago that uh, the D&D was doing its big open play test D&D Next and it was basically done on postcards and emails yeah to like tell Wizards of the Coast how your game went and like colouring little boxes for satisfaction and like you know did your barbarian rage hard enough from one to five (laughs) But now, yeah, you can watch you can watch people playing your game. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't bring myself to do it. I know people do play my game. I know I, I know that there are actual plays and recordings and, and all of that kind of stuff out there, which I wildly applaud from a distance. I cannot bring myself to go and watch it. Oh, do, do you want me to do it? I'll get my clip chart out with my satisfaction Oof. ratings from one to five. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the fact of the matter is, there's no way I'd, I'd end up watching any of those and then blame myself for any mistakes that were made. <laughs> so Sean's a better man than I. <laughs> Very nice of him to mention uh, King of Dungeons as well as our podcast. It's, it's good to have one of our loyal listeners actually on the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, we encourage interaction, don't we, mate? And, um, you know, as usual, massive thanks to our glorious patrons who keep us on the air and enable us to do the things we do, like these interviews, but also uh, patrons to our show will have noticed that this year, in 2021, uh, once a month, we drop a a digital magazine into your uh, hard drives, uh, print them if you like, and then you've got the real thing. And we do that once a month, and these little zinis are starting to form quite the collection now. Um, and that's a little bonus for anybody who drops a, a couple of dollars into the 
into the tip jar every month. Thank you for that, guys. And um, we would love to have more of anyone's contributions to go into those. So if you have some guests that you would like us to talk to, if you have any articles or reviews or comment pieces that you would like us to, to do for you, either as text or talk about on the show, get in touch. Yeah, for sure. If nothing else, you can send in a, a reader's letters. If you imagine like the agony app pages of old, if you've got <laughs> a, a gaming question, a conundrum that needs solving, then uh, write into us and, and we'll we'll endeavour to get it answered in the letters page. <laughs> as long as the answer is either Hot War or Earththorn, those are the easy ones. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we encourage essay questions too. We've, we've been asked some good ones recently, haven't we? And there'll be more stuff to come in the zines as well. Uh, so sort of tough tough queries really for, for the GM under fire uh, about, uh, about players at your table. And yeah, some of this stuff isn't easy, but these questions have come up over the years, so there's got to be a reason for them. But we want more. So, you know, communicate. Uh, let us know how you feel about stuff and, and what you want to see coming up for the rest of 2021. We do still have some guests in our back pockets, don't we, mate? And, um, we do. And some plans for the year. But certainly our, our Patreon smart posse is growing uh, and we could only benefit from more of you so that we can put more zine in your hands. Indeed, yeah. And we've had a couple of a couple of letters or missives from people suggesting what we might talk about on the podcast as well. So that's always good. If you've got an idea about an episode you'd like to hear on, then don't be shy of dropping us a line and we'll see what we can do at lining up in the schedule. Uh, and also, in addition, currently, to the Smart Zine is that we're serialising the D&D adventure that uh, myself and Baz have put together that's on DM's Guild now. If you go over and look for the Born Alchemist, you can get it in full glorious colour with photo-bashed images and nice maps. But mm. patrons get all the text for free, an episode at a time, uh, in the Happy Patreon every month. So... You know, that's one of the many benefits of backing us on Patreon, apart from things like getting me a new microphone and to buy some editing software. <laughs> Which you should be able to hear the benefit of, and you can see the benefit of by heading to DM's Guild and looking out for the Bone Alchemist. For the price of a posh coffee, you can buy something that, uh, that Gaz wrote, and I helped him write, and then you can tell us how we don't take our own advice. <laughs> that's it. That's, it's like a competition, spot the mistakes. <laughs> but you said in episode 32 that this should never happen in an adventure yeah I know, sorry if we get enough responses we, we could, it could become a feature in the fanzine to be honest <laughs> it really could it really could blooper yeah, of the week your own rules. <laughs> yeah and uh, it's not just patrons of course anyone who spreads the word of the podcast if you share it on social media give us likes, tell other people about it recommend us or even go on to iTunes or places like that and give us a rating that all helps us with the internet algorithms and helps us stay afloat and keep delivering more great content to you our lovely listeners yeah you'll have to do it twice on iTunes due to something that happened in a timey-wimey way many many years ago we have two identical accounts um, so if you post a review on one it doesn't go on the other one <laughs> so double everything you see on iTunes and you'll be just about there for us I think so, yeah. And if anyone works for Apple, please get in touch. <laughs> they can't fix it. It's bizarre. We have a parallel universe of iTunes reviews going on. Ah, oh, it's crazy. Uh, what are you going to do? What's coming up next then? So we've got some more things in the can, as we say. I think probably the biggest thing to look out for with the Smart Party, and with you all at home, I hope, is that everyone's been doing their best to stay safe. And it looks like the long, dark year of online gaming is starting to open up a little bit. Conventions are talking about 
about having real people around real tables again soon. And we've got plans to meet up in, in real space as well. So 2021 summer can't come quick enough for us, I think. And uh, it might be time to blow the dust off those dice, maybe? Oh, yes. Or oh, the time to buy more new dice. Yes. Smart dice. New lucky dice for <laughs> this year. Awesome stuff. Right. Well, hopefully, listeners, we will see you out there in meat space. But if not, we will see you next time in the next episode of What Would the Smart Party Do? See you later. Thank you.